I got all, I got all the fucking work I need. 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 Welcome to the American Vandal from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. I'm Matt Siebel. You just listened to Dan Reeder's work song, which he has generously lent to us for this, our fourth season, on the theme of the world's work. The World's Work was the title of a turn-of-the-century magazine, which Mark Twain sometimes satirized. It was a propaganda periodical, subsidized by U.S. business, committed to proselytizing the gospel of work. The work ethic, personal sacrifice, individual mobility via meritocratic competition, and loyalty to one's employer. It was designed to erode the solidarity of unions and other labor organizations, which had made possible rising wages, improving work conditions, and the emerging middle-class prosperity which we now associate with the progressive era. Over the next seven episodes, we will be exploring the tiresome history, exasperating present, and potential futures of work through conversations with scholars about education, gigification, casualization, compromise, the Alger myth, and much more. We hope you'll take us with you on your commute, divide your attention during the data entry, play us in your rideshare, and otherwise share with us the burden, but also the occasional beauty of collective labor. Out of the public schools grows the greatness of the nation, so wrote Mark Twain. Though he is often misrepresented as a Philistine or anti-intellectual, due mainly to his famous satire of primary school in Adventures of Tom Sawyer, Twain was actually a vehement proponent of formal education, particularly as a force for democratization and equity. He was extremely proud of the honorary degrees he received and he subsidized the education of numerous protégés, notably Warner McGuinn, one of the first black graduates of Yale Law School, who would later himself become the mentor and benefactor of Thurgood Marshall. And Twain and his extended family were aggressive advocates for women's education at all levels, including founders of the first U.S. college to grant degrees to women, Elmira College, now home to the Center for Mark Twain Studies. And so, it seems appropriate to begin the world's work with consideration of the workplace in which I reside and the broader profession to which I and most of our guests on the American Vandal belong. For this consideration, I welcome two scholars who have turned a critical lens on higher education by excavating the often obscure financial, entrepreneurial, and political economic conditions in which academic work takes place. Annie McClanahan is Associate Professor of English at University of California, Irvine, and the author of Dead Pledges, Debt, Crisis, and 21st Century Culture. She is currently working on a new book about service work inside and outside the university. 
Ashish Kapoor Sadiq is assistant professor of history at University of Massachusetts Amherst. He won the 2020 Dorothy Ross Prize from the Society of U.S. Intellectual History for his work on the archives of early political economy. And he has published on numerous aspects of U.S. higher education in The Daily Beast, Inside Higher Ed, and Teen Vogue. For more about their work, as well as a bibliography of works discussed in this episode, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash edwork. With the two of you, I think one of the things that I find very interesting is that there seem to be sort of parallel tracks to your research, maybe a more conventional academic path and then a more interdisciplinary or unexpected uh, path. And I, I want to see if you could explain to us how those things connect. And so I'll, I'll start with Ashish, I guess, that your sort of traditional research path seems to be in early modern, primarily British or uh, British colonial trade. But you have this secondary public engagement with higher ed and higher ed specifically in the late 20th and early 20th century. And so I was hoping you could explain how did those two things come together and what is it that you gain from your study of Atlantic trade that translates into your work on higher education? Well, thanks so much, Matt. I think that I am somebody who's broadly interested in sort of how institutions work and how the the political economic environment in which they operate really shapes what they do. And in my own scholarship, I've been really interested in sort of tracing how that inflects in the creation of really large, complicated bureaucratic systems of state administration across distance. I've thought a lot about the early modern period in some sense via my own encounter with one of the great bureaucratic systems of of the modern world, which is the university, which is both a kind of a, a wonderful, frustrating, infuriating bureaucratic system where a lot of different kinds of work come to be necessary to make the the system function, but at the same time, a profound degree of exploitation built in, but also a profound degree of invisibility around the kind of work that so-called matters or that counts for the purposes of things like metrics. And there's also that discrepancy between that kind of work, the kind of that, that gets measured and, and, and in some cases remunerated, and the actual work that ends up being necessary to make the system function. I, I started UMass on the tenure track in fall 2019, which meant essentially that I spent most of my time, really all except for one semester, in a pandemic where I think we've learned, especially as academics, just where and how fragile this, this bureaucratic system of the university is and, and how much it relies upon either unpaid or really poorly compensated labor that is nevertheless absolutely essential for the thing to function. And, and as we've gone through the pandemic, I mean, that is seems to me one of the, the biggest realization for a lot of people in our, in our world. For you, Annie, your background is in literary, literary studies and, and specifically in sort of post-45 fiction, but you have become known also as one of the sort of experts on student debt. And now I know current research that's about 
other forms of exploited of economic exploitation. And I'm also fascinated by your interest in microeconomics and the history of microeconomics. And so what sort of connected post-45 fiction and economic contexts for you? Yeah, thanks so much. That's a really fun question to answer. When I was a graduate student and I was really interested, I was working on financialization and working on um, fiction and thinking about the speculative as a dimension of both fiction and financialization, interested in the kind of theoretical conversation around that and simultaneously doing a lot of activist work on campus around tuition increases in the UC system. This is circa uh, 2007 to 2009 or so. And so really um, engaging in that context and thinking, particularly thinking with students and realizing immediately how much my students' lives and particularly their ability to participate in and their relationship to activism around tuition, how much it was structured and shaped and in, in a lot of cases contained by the fact that they were paying for their college degree with a lot of debt. And so one of the things that I started doing when I would go into teach-ins with undergraduates thinking about tuition increases, there were really these really dramatic tuition increases in the UC system in that period. There was a, you know, a year where tuition was raised by 30%, which is pretty extraordinary. And so one of the things I would do going into those teach-ins was say, like, I'm going to open this conversation by confessing how much debt I have, and then thinking about why I would think of that as something to confess and thinking about why this is not the kind of thing that we typically tend to talk about, and then have them talk about their debt and their relationship to their debt. Because in many cases, they were saying to us when we were trying to you know, get them to participate in general strikes around these tuition increases, they were saying, none of this feels real because I'm not paying for it now. Like I'm, I'm paying for it all on, on credit. Those conversations and also seeing what was happening to my students around the period of the financial crisis, where many of them were, for instance, saying like, I have to miss class because I have to go help my parents who are being evicted from their home in the Central Valley. Those conversations really shaped the trajectory of my research. And I became less interested in speculation as a kind of theoretical opacity or abstraction and much more interested in the actual debt that underwrote those instruments, particularly in consumer debt, so mortgages, credit cards, and student loans. And so I have felt like a lot of my research agenda has been deeply shaped by my students and by conversations with my students and by my sense of needing to kind of meet them where they are and respond to the conditions that they're experiencing on the ground. And I think that's true of my second book project too, which is about service work and was sort of initially inspired by one of the assignments that I always do with students is, or often do with students in like a theory class is that I have them write a worker's inquiry where they talk about their own working experiences. And obviously so many of our students um, and I myself, when I was a student where they're working is in the service industry. And so mm -hmm. I became really interested in thinking about the service industry and the particular forms of exploitation that it produces both what is contemporary about that, what is specific to the 21st century, what has a longer history going all the way back to the early capitalist or even pre-capitalist forms of exploitation. And then also thinking about the university as a very complicated site of service work. There are kinds of work in the university that look very much like what we typically think of when we hear the phrase service work, and there are other kinds that don't. 
I'm really interested now in thinking about what would it mean to take the university as a case study of service work alongside other more obvious forms like tip work or gig work or digital piece work, things that look more like what we typically associate with service work. What would it mean to think of the university alongside those kinds of labor? So I feel like sort of fairly consistently, the way that my work has developed has been out of teaching conversations and my own sort of work life experience, my own student debt, my own experience as a faculty member. And I kind of can't imagine like what my academic work, what my scholarly work would have been like without those interactions, because they've always been what has seemed most compelling to me. Both of you make reference to the extent to which there is a lot of invisible labor, unpaid labor, uh, to, to borrow Lee Claire LeBerge's term, decommodified labor that is taking place on campuses in this very complicated system that I think is maybe made more complicated because it is illegible and invisible to a wider public. We did a series at the end of last year on The Chair, on Netflix is The Chair. And one of the things I liked about that is unlike some other pop culture representations of the university, we do get some sense of the relationship between students, professors, and an administration as a third constituency. Instead of just seeing students and professors in the classroom, there is an acknowledgement of this wider bureaucracy. However, as many people pointed out, there's no contingent labor, right? There's uh, there's very little staff, right? There are many other aspects of university life that are that remain invisible in that show, and I think that's where I'd I'd like to, to shift now is sort of what aspects of college work do you think are most illegible and inaccessible to the general public who doesn't or or to people who aren't working in the depths of the university for an extended period of time? Scholarship, I think, especially in the humanities, is one of the most difficult things for people to understand as labor and, and, and the public, but even within the university. And I mean, in, in some sense, this is one of the, the key crises that we have, is that even within the university, the actual labor of the humanities is misunderstood profoundly because it doesn't index in the same way as, say, STEM fields to grant funding, to outputs, to measurement capitalist universities have adopted, which are drawn largely from the sciences, but really don't make sense for the humanities, especially as humanists. I I say that in the the, really the broadest sense to to include a lot of um, social scientists are, you know, are trying to grapple with the fact that we do so much invisible unpaid labor to produce work that in a, in a world in which citation counts and, and, and the quantity of publications is increasingly seen as the, the metric by which good scholarship or accomplished scholarship is, is measured, that we have a real problem because that's not how the humanities work. One of the things that I fear may be happening is that uh, the U.S., is increasingly moving toward a system that is borrowing in some sense some of the worst aspects of other uh, national academic systems. I think in particular of the UK and the so-called research excellence framework or the REF in which universities receive government funding and departments receive government funding based on things like how many papers people produced. And, and this is a metric that, that that is then applied equally to 
uh, say, math or physics, which has a very different model of scholarly outlook as to history or literature or in the case of the pandemic, when not only have, you know, academics in the U.S. and, and certainly across the world, but I guess I'll speak mainly to the, to the context of the U.S., been asked to continue doing a lot of the kind of the unpaid labor that they were already doing in terms of producing scholarship, doing things like peer review, all things that if we stopped doing them tomorrow, would see basically the, the, the academy stop working. They've in, they, they are increasingly being asked to do even more unpaid labor, doing more care work. It's, it's not that those things are bad. It's not bad to do that. It's not a bad thing that, that, that faculty are, are, have stepped up. It's a good thing. But it's work, and it deserves to be recognized and compensated appropriately. And one of the things we've seen in the pandemic is that rather than meeting uh, meeting that challenge, what universities are saying is, we're going to continue to pay you less mm-hmm. for doing more work, and we're going to continue to expect you now to do these added forms of labor without adequate compensation. You know, now you'll be expected, even in a post-pandemic world, perhaps to be uh, able to offer your courses both in person and on Zoom. Mm-hmm. And we're going to pay you the same or perhaps even less in, in adjusted dollars. And so that is one of the biggest concerns I think that I have going forward. Faculty stepping in to build the remote instruction infrastructure is definitely one of the the unpaid forms of work that I, that I have seen proliferating. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm th- I'm thinking a lot about some of what Ashish said earlier about institutions and about the university as a kind of an exemplary case of what institutions are capable of, both positively and negatively. And it has seemed to me for a while that the university is remarkably capable, maybe even more than other kinds of bureaucratic institutions, at doing that work of concealing the degree to which it depends on low-waged labor in particular. And so I'm thinking about the fact that so much of the labor that's done, the sort of sustaining labor that's done to allow a university campus infrastructure to run is now being outsourced outsourcing and these kinds of so-called public-private partnerships are allowing universities to get around the strength of campus unions, particularly in the lower-waged forms of work on which the university depends, dining services, housing services, campus infrastructure, physical infrastructure, gardening, maintenance, all that stuff, how much of that is being outsourced at universities, and thus the exploitation of those workers being fully concealed from public view. You can make a similar case with regard to the position of contingent faculty and part-time faculty and adjunct faculty, right? Where the fact that that those kinds that kind of work doesn't appear on the chair is instructive as a kind of like narrative question with regard to that show, but also exemplary of the way that universities that do in fact depend heavily on adjunct and non-tenure line labor for most of its teaching capacity. It's also not visible on campus, except sometimes when you have a strike. It's like only when the labor is withheld that it becomes obvious how important it was. And yeah. so a lot of what I've been what I've been thinking about is the question of the relationship between that concealing of labor, the way in which it is enabled by these kinds of outsourcing, and then recently thinking about it as it connects to these questions around technology. A number of years ago, when I started this project about service work, I was really interested in thinking about the fact that Service work is typically understood to be fundamentally different from industrial labor because it tends to be low efficiency. It's very hard to increase, exponentially increase the efficiency of a teacher or a doctor 
or even somebody doing food preparation in the way that you could in exponentially increase the productivity of an assembly line worker. You're not going to increase it by a hundredfold with a simple invention like an assembly line. And so one of the things that that was leading me to think about was the way that, you know, circa 2010, for quite a few years, a lot of academics were writing very anxiously and critically about the development of MOOCs and other forms of online education and worrying a lot about the potential automated unemployment that that might lead to. And what was actually happening in that period was dr dramatic rises in adjunctification. Which is to say that in the university, as in many other service sector portions of the economy, it's not actually necessary to invest in immense amounts of technological productivity because the wage, the labor is so cheap and you have a ready pool in the case of the university of adjuncts willing to work for very little without having to be technologically automated at all. And so that was really sort of where my work on the university and technology and service work was going. And then of course the pandemic happens and it becomes obvious that although it is hard to de-skill and increase the efficiency of service work in the context of teaching. It's not impossible. And I think that we're at a real sort of moment of transition with regard to this question. And I am finding that tenure-line faculty in particular, because we have been taught to think of ourselves as autonomous from the institution, as protected by the institution, as having some kind of special position within the institution that marks us as different from everyone from the people that do landscaping to the people that teach most of the composition classes we've been taught to think of ourselves as distinct and thus as invulnerable and i think that part of what is about to start happening is that we're about to realize how very similar our working lives might become to the working lives of 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 people in lower waged and more precarious kinds of kinds of jobs precisely because of what will happen as a result of the immense investment that universities are making in the infrastructure of online teaching and the technology of online teaching. And so, for instance, faculty have been quite confident that universities will continue the sort of tradition of respecting faculty's intellectual property rights in their course material. And faculty have not been attending to the fact that in the law, that tradition is only a tradition. The law says that the university does have the right to claim intellectual property in, in the work that we do as teachers. And a lot of people have been willing to just accept that the administration tells them that they won't do that. If you asked, for instance, an adjunct or somebody who's organized for AFSME or SEIU on campus, do you trust the administration? They would tell you, um, hell no, right? Let's get that in writing, please. Whereas faculty seem like because of our sort of um, historically privileged place within the institution, our own willingness to ignore the presence of all of these forms of obscured labor, it will be to our detriment politically if we don't begin to realize that we are not so very different from a lot of these other hyper-exploited workers on campus. To speak to just some of what Annie's talking about, many of us, myself included, have been willing to create archives of remote or hybrid courses that are, if not fully automated, are automatable with relatively little labor. I, I even went so far at the outset of the pandemic of starting to create a fully open access version of one of my courses the culture of global recession, which I've been teaching for many years and have put hundreds of hours of labor into. And when we went remote in March of 2020, I looked at the version of the course I was creating through our learning management software. And I thought, this is actually pretty dope. And once you've got my video lectures and my assignment sheets and my discussion prompts and this huge archive of materials that I've been putting together for over a decade, like you could almost just plug and play. 
I don't feel like that about most of my courses, but I did about this particular one. And so I decided I'd rather give the material away. Like, and it wasn't so much that I was worried about my employer about Elmira College as I was about the ed tech companies that were facilitating this transition to remote instruction. What was their legal claim to the material on their platform and who during this period of rapid transition, adjustment, you know, shock doctrine, was making sure they weren't positioning themselves as basically like the rentiers of intellectual property housed on their servers. That's part of what has been happening during this sort of disrupted phase, the building of a, a remote infrastructure, of an online infrastructure that is makeshift now but may eventually be more rigorous and more replicable. On the one hand, absolutely the pandemic has been used as cover, as shock doctrine for the implementation of things that maybe administrations and boards of trustees would have been you know, more resigned to do a few years ago. It has also been met with the sort of increased visibility, for, I think, for instance, of the Columbia grad students who organized and, and won their contract dispute through strike uh, just last week. What are the things that you are looking for as we reach this, you know, Omicron phase of the, the pandemic in terms of how university workers are going to have to adjust and maybe what do we need to do in order to make visible the complexity and the casualization of university labor? There is so much more that that tenured and tenure track faculty need to do. I mean, the academic labor movement right now is, and, and perhaps as it should be, being powered right now by graduate and contingent workers. But I, my sense is that tenured and tenure track faculty continue to to not in 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 nearly the numbers that are necessary join their colleagues in demanding fair contracts and fair treatment from universities. I mean, I felt anecdotally, I mean, I spent a lot of time on Twitter during the Columbia grad worker strike. And while this is by no means a, a scientific gauge of uh, engagement, I was struck by how little attention was paid to this by tenured faculty members with relatively large Twitter followings and Twitter clout. I would also add uh, on, a, on a kind of a more perhaps empirically sound basis that one of the normative sites for tenured academic power, right, are disciplinary organizations like the American Historical Association and the MLA Modern Language Associations or the ACLA. And those institutions, I can speak particularly to the AHA, have been for much of their recent history profoundly reticent um, and indeed sort of adamant both that they are certainly not unions, which they continue to insist on, but also that the way to address the, the crisis of contingency in the academy is not to more militantly and aggressively argue for labor protections for intellectual workers and for work in the academy more generally, but instead to say that what we really should be doing is training people for what, what is now called career diversity for, for many different kinds of outcomes within the economy. And that is, I think, more a capitulation to capitalism's impact on the, the university than it is resistant. This past conference of the, the annual conference of the AHA, there was a panel that uh, the AHA put on about seeking work beyond the academy. And 
a lot of people felt like this was really not what was needed right now, that actually what was needed was for disciplinary organizations to stand up for academic workers, especially grad workers and contingent workers, and say they deserve better treatment. The labor movement more generally has been undermined and deracinated over the last 20, 30 years, and also as academic workers have often not been involved in the labor movement, the, the normative site of engagement has become disciplinary associations in which usually scholarship and labor tend to be not conceptualized as the same thing. They actually tend to be conceptualized as, as distinct. So the work of scholarship and the work of labor are often in, in, in the context of disciplinary associations like the American Historical Association like the MLA, not thought of it as the same thing. And I think that that tends to perpetuate a certain complacency among tenured faculty toward the academic labor movement because they fundamentally do not think of themselves as workers. And that leads to them both kind of to go to Annie's work to see themselves as operating in a totally distinct class from every other laborer on campuses and to see uh, the the plight of contingent colleagues and grand and, and grad workers as something to which they should simply not concern themselves, which I think is a is a is a terrible attitude and 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 significantly undermining the potential collective power that we as teachers in the university have. Mm-hmm. It's bad ethics, but it's also self destructive. Right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. it makes me think about. I mean, it, it, I think that's like such a that Ashish's point about the sort of research labor division makes me think a lot about the way that arguments against grad student unions have always been put, which is that like what is done, what happens, for instance, in the advisor advisee relation or the professor TA relation is not work. It's not a working arrangement. It's something else, right? It's a it's a mentorship. It's kind of proto parental. It's a bildungsroman. Whatever whatever it is, it's not a labor contract. And the ways in which that like has led not only to the exploitation and the and indeed the failure to recognize the needs of graduate student workers and students but also it is an error that we make to our own detriment i mean i've been in a number of conversations with faculty recently about these questions about onlineification i've said like look if indeed the shift to greater levels of technological mediation does not lead to there ultimately being far fewer jobs for us. We would literally be the first class of workers ever in the history of capitalism for which that was not true, right? So like, I don't know how special you think you are, but you are really making an assertion that you will be historically the first group of workers where this did not happen. And then similarly, like, you know, having conversations about, for instance, questions of de-skilling. So saying like, you know, to use your example, Matt, of like creating these kind of like portable, reusable online courses that like the likely trajectory is that what you will have is a kind of combination between high levels of technological mediation, something like automation, and that continued and persistent exploitation of lower waged academic work, right? So that you might have your course already pre-developed, put up online without requiring you, and then a grad student to do the the grading and commenting. And so talking about that process as a process of de-skilling, right? Again, connecting it with these longer trajectories of industrial and post-industrial automation. A number of my colleagues really objected to me describing what was happening as de-skilling because they said, well, but I've learned so many new skills. (laughs) And um, I just think that's extraordinary. I just think that's an extraordinary sort of failure to see ourselves as situated within history and a desire to 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 make as autonomous 
simply by virtue of wishing that it were so. If we don't see the ways in which that ultimately serves the interests of the institution at the highest levels of administration, we will find ourselves left behind by history. The only way around that, it seems to me, is exactly what what Ashish said, is that like we have to conceive of ourselves as laborers and we have to conceive of our interests as like fundamentally linked to the interests of every other laborer on campus, including grad students and adjuncts and also including people that work in dining services. I was walking across campus the other night. Our campuses were still online, so campus is empty. And the entire campus was sort of lit by the lights of those little delivery robots that were sort of buzzing all around campus, um, taking food to students uh-huh. in their dorms and in their campus housing. It was very uncanny. It felt very post-apocalyptic. There is an image of the future there, and we ignore it at our peril. It sort of strikes me how deep-seated the sort of romance of the university professor is for the professoriate, right? We, we both entertain, and maybe for understandable reasons, this idea of being autonomous, to being, you know, being able to sort of turn to our intellectual, uh, we don't even like to call it work or labor, right? Turn to our scholarship and, you know, read to dip into the archive to do that work without hope of it being remunerated or without placing it in a market context. And we refer to we prefer to refer to each other as colleagues and advisees as opposed to co-workers or employees it's a very you know sort of psychologically deep-seated aspect of the professoriate yet i think that that sense that illusion of autonomy is also kind of a synecdoche for the university at large. And that's something I'm seeing in both of your your work as well, right? Is that just as the university professor likes to see themselves as a special class of worker, the university oftentimes is presented, whether self-consciously or not, as a special class of institution, when in fact, in many ways, we now see that it is operating much like a corporation and is being interrelated with a set of economic forces. You mentioned outsourcing the increasing importance of ed tech, tech entrepreneurship for the university. This is a site of uh, venture capital now. I know in Ashish's work, there is a real interest in the ways in which boards of trustees are composed. Another one I think of is endowments. The cliche is that a university is a hedge fund with a football team attached to it, right? But as Kelly uh, Grokey recently wrote, this is a real site of corruption, the way in which university endowments are sometimes being used without the awareness of even many people in the upper administration. And so what is it important for us to think about in terms of the university as something which is not disjuncted from the rest of the economic system, but is rather a sort of important portal between these sometimes invisible forms of investment, exploitation, entrepreneurship, et cetera? You know, one of the things that I was thinking about, Matt, as you were raising this, because you mentioned the EdTech and Board of Trustees, and I was thinking of another aspect of this, which is something that I think was also prompted by Annie's comment about food delivery on campus, is outsourcing and franchising on campus. I mean, now to to walk into many campus dining halls, I remember this was my experience when I was postdoc at both the University of Southern California, USC in LA for a time, and then I was a postdoc at Penn State for a year. 
And at both of those places, when you walked into the dining hall, what you saw was, uh, it was almost like you were in a, in a suburban mall cafeteria in America, that all of the kinds of chain corporate entities, Pizza Hut, Sabaro, Wendy's, McDonald's, they all are established on campus. And so what is going on there, right? There's, of course, the, the, the issue, which is often very difficult to figure out because of the way uh, of how untransparent college finance can be about exactly who is paying who to do what. You know, is the university selling access to McDonald's? Is, is the university profiting off? Often these things are very complicated and, well, not so much complicated, but very untransparent and hard to figure out. But it also sends a message, and I think this is equally important to students, that the university is simply an extension of corporate capitalism writ large in society, rather than a space where we can think critically about whether this is the political economic order that we want. I sometimes teach a course on the history of the corporation. When I was at USC, one of the things that came out is as as we discussed the presence of these corporations on campus, whether it be the Sabaro's outlet in the school cafeteria or partnering with food delivery services like Grubhub or DoorDash to manage payments on campus, is that students come away with this sense that these systems, which are often profoundly exploitative based upon very, very poorly remunerated labor, gig work, are the natural order of things, which I think really pushes back against what I, what I think of, of as really the purpose of the university, which is to, to imagine and to think critically about what is natural and what the, the, the political and the economic and the social order is, mm-hmm. but rather to think about what it should be. And so I think that it is a disturbing trend, which we really need to think about much more critically about the extent to which modern financial capitalism has really taken over literally almost every little aspect of campus life from how students dine to how they get their textbooks, which is, again, often something that is outsourced to very large for-profit companies. Who are we paying what kind of money to? I mean, Zoom isn't a nonprofit corporation. Sometimes this the seamlessness through which we interact with these corporate tools, even as academics and certainly as people teaching in a classroom or just being on campus, can make us either kind of blind or, or I think almost dangerously passive to the way that they undermine the university as a space for, for, for critical thought. Yeah, I think that's so true. I mean, one of the things that I wrote about in my first book is that one of the things that happens with the sort of financialization of student debt is that you have the creation of these instruments, securities instruments called SLABs, which is student loan asset-backed securities. And because of the way that SLABs were packaged, they were often sold as an investment to pension funds with the result that many university professors are probably literally invested in the debt of their own students. Of course, like most people, I think would be completely horrified to know that, but there's a way in which the non-transparency operates at every level to 
prevent us from understanding that. And indeed, probably many of the administration of the university itself wouldn't know because there's always a kind of passing of the buck from the university to the pension fund manager to the who the pension fund is invested in, et cetera, et cetera, right? So these processes of concealing and opacity work best at that kind of financial level, I think. That line about the, the sort of Harvard line, like a hedge fund with a university attached has been really interesting to see that play out over the course of the pandemic, I saw another thread on Twitter where people were talking about other ways to restate that. And and one of the things that's come up during the pandemic is that the university is a leisure and hospitality firm with a university attached. Mm -hmm. And so when you realize, for instance, how much of the university's budget relies on student housing, often again, through these outsourced agreements, either public-private partnerships with property developers, or in many cases, those exactly those kinds of corporate partnerships that Ashish was describing. You could even say in many cases, a university is a parking lot with, with a university attached because a lot of the universities, particularly it's sort of highly flexible budget, the part of the budget that can be used for whatever the administration wants comes out of things as banal as parking fees. The university is a hospital with a university attached. Many universities are highly and increasingly dependent on their medical complex, often, again, not a for-profit entity, right? It's not simply about like noticing that the university is embedded within a set of uh, external economic relationships, but it is simply a version of the corporation um, operating in a different and a slightly different economic landscape, right? And so like, how do we think about that embeddedness and, and, and help our students see that embeddedness? The only one thing I would add to what Ashish was saying is that like, I do think it's also important though, to recognize that our view as humanists and humanistically minded social scientists it's important to know that there are also lots of people on the university who do not hold that sort of ideology critical view, right? And I mean, to, to say something briefly about my strange experience taking a year and a half of econ classes, one of the sort of most difficult moments for me, so I had this weird fellowship where I was funded to take, take a year and a half of undergraduate courses and sort of sit in on those classes. And one of the weirdest experiences I had was I took a class from a guy who's a very longstanding UCI leading light in economics and has received not incidentally like about 1.5 million bucks from the Koch Foundation to support his research, right? No surprise there. And he um, persistently over the course of this class on corporate microeconomics would say like, well, let's take an example of a highly inefficient employment model and that's gonna be the tenure system. And so he has a room full of 300 undergrads, all of them public university students, many of them from the state of California in a UC in campus, taught by a professor who has himself benefited from the tenure system, being told that this is a terrible model for capitalist economic efficiency, right? And so the main thing that sort of I came out of that experience thinking was that the whole idea that there is something sort of fundamentally leftist or fundamentally critical or fundamentally skeptical about what happens in the university classroom, like is only true for certain sections of campus. There are a lot of students who are coming through the university, participating in its sort of corporate life and participating in it as a corporate institution, and also being told that that is completely fine and indeed appropriate and that more of that would be better. I do think it's interesting to think about the relationship between 
what is happening in scholarship in the university broadly, not just in the humanities and, and sort of leftist social sciences, thinking about that, the scholarship being done outside of our sort of purview and the changes in the university as a sort of economic institution. Ashish, I know you have also written quite eloqu eloquently about the myth of the socialist professor, <laughs> the leftist professor. <laughs> so I, do you want to follow up on that? Because I, I, yeah, I know it plays right I, I into some of the research you've been doing. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, we often talk about the story of a broadly speaking half century decline in, in public funding for universities and, and for academic research. But one could also tell that same story as the story of the rise of broadly speaking right wing funding for academic research in the formation of a profound range of groups and centers and academic movements really underwrote with probably by this point mean, millions, perhaps even billions of dollars by this point, the rise of really right-wing ideologically driven movements that operate under the guise of so-called objective academic research. I mean, I'm thinking in particular of Things like the law and economics movement, which a group called the Olin Foundation really bankrolled and which um, is now a major presence at law schools around this country. One can think of the Koch Foundation, which are the Koch brothers who are usually invoked in American political discourse around their funding of, of Republican political candidates, but who have also invested an enormous amount of money in academic research centers, again, around things like right-wing economics, free market economics, in some sense, even as we talk about, you know, this broad defunding of the humanities, I mean, another crucial part of the story is the fact that um, particularly as public funding for the academy has declined precipitously as both austerity regimes and low tax regimes have kind of taken over at the state level, there's been this other parallel rise of immense amount of right-wing funding for academic research, particularly in the social sciences, and, and particularly to go to, uh, to Annie's point in, in economics, that I think has, is also a crucial part of the story of how the university has become a place very much contra to the, to the oft trotted out caricature of, uh, you know, the, the radical campus or the Marxist professor if I think if you were to look at the composition of who really is doing profoundly ideologically and money and, and ideologically driven money research, you will find that it is almost entirely coming from the right. This is one of the, the, the stories that I think can often be hard for people to grasp in part because of the longstanding myth, which has many different roots, but I think really stems from the, the McCarthy demonization of the professoriate which was both false then and, and is now truly ridiculous, but yet has had this immense amount of culturally, uh, cultural enduring power. You both mentioned the extent to which it is the, the decline of state funding that opens up this opportunity for private, oftentimes think tanks or investment funds to sort of move in and give an ideological bent to endowed professorships, academic centers, and so on. But obviously, 
even bigger than that, what has moved into that space is this gigantic bubble of student loan debt on which all of this floats, right? You know, the monopolistic Starbucks at the center of a campus, the ed tech entrepreneurship, Zoom, so on. They, they are all here. They all see the university as the site of investment because it's that opportunity to extract from that ever-growing bubble. We're speaking now at a moment when the sort of discourse around uh, student debt seems to be finding some sort of at least temporary climax. That one of the questions that is certainly going to govern the next election cycle is, does President Biden forgive the, you know, massive amounts of student debt? How much will he forgive? He's already forgiven a very small amount. And Potentially, the, the outcome of the next election, the next two elections, may ride to some extent on how does the federal government respond to this perhaps unprecedented financialized pool of debt. And so I guess the question I want to ask both of you is, what is the result for the university based on those decisions that are forthcoming? If we see this as a kind of fork in the road moment, which I I somewhat do. What does the university look like going forward if that massive amount of debt is forgiven and therefore the extractive potential of the university goes away for, say, ed tech, corporate franchises, and so on and so forth? And what does it look like if the Biden administration chooses not to go down that road and we sort of keep with the system as is, which it doesn't feel like the center can hold for all that much longer? I mean, I think it seems to me that like one question, and I honestly, I have no idea what the answer to this question is, is like, what happens? I mean, imagine that the Biden administration decides, like takes the strongest possible version of their response and forgives a large amount, right? Let's say that they go and all the way up to saying they'll forgive up to $50,000 or something for everyone. What then happens with tuition? I don't think any university has figured out what, what the response will be. Like, do we then just say this will apply to the students of these generations, but then the students of the future will continue to be expected to pay the same level of tuition and thus accrue the same level of debt? And we'll just have to have this conversation again in mm -hmm. 10 or 20 years? Like, what does it mean? I still have very little sense of what your average, say, Board of Regents member or university president thinks about all this. Because the truth is, is that even if state financing were to improve significantly, many universities have come to rely on the so-called flexibility of the tuition dollars, most of them funded by debt, a flexibility that is not there with the state money. So the UC Santa Cruz professor Robert Meister has written really influentially about this and has pointed out that state state dollars are earmarked for specifically educational expenses, whereas student tuition dollars can be used to to buy a building or to develop an entrepreneurship center or to fund a swimming pool or whatever, right? So there's a lot more flexibility. And if universities are going to have to go back to relying mostly on the much more restricted spending opportunities of state funding, even if that state funding were to return, which I don't think it will, but even if it were, they would have to really change their priorities. I don't see that happening anytime soon. There's also the sense that increasingly universities themselves are understanding themselves not simply as competitors, but as collaborators within the sector. And so, for instance, the price fixing scandal that's come out in the last few weeks is an example of that, right, where you no longer have um, 
the sense that universities are all sort of simply competing for the same students, but that they're doing so in a kind of monopolistic way where they're collaborating on their sort of algorithms for understanding student needs, student financial need, and, and what portion of students they can admit and expect them to pay the full price and what portion of students they will have to offer scholarships to, et cetera, right? And so it, it's possible that the response to these changes might be that that university administrators start to treat what they're doing in even more corporate terms because they're forced by virtue of these changes in the availability of unrestricted funds to to collaborate with with one another in terms of fixing the sort of price of tuition. So I think it's really like very much an open question. What would be the the outcome, even in the best case scenario where where Biden does cancel a, a large portion of, of student debt? I kind of don't think he will, but I also think it's not clear what the next phase of that would look like. What I kind of keep coming back to is this the total disappearance of any semblance of the uni- of, 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 of an idea of the university as a public good, as opposed to something that is just a place where various interests go to profit. I, I'm, I'm not here to romanticize the, the mid-20th century public expansion of the university, which was incredibly racist um, and which privileged white men in terms of the kinds of people who had subsidies to go to college. But if we could build a kind of an anti-racist vision, a truly democratic vision of uh, of the publicly supported university, there's a chance we we can push back against this idea of the university as just another place within the financial capitalized economy where a bunch of different interests come to profit. The overall response of, of universities to sort of the, the increasing way in which the market has become the normative form for thinking about all kinds of human relationships has been to kind of accommodate that rather, and, and especially in its own practices, rather than to try to question that and, and ask whether whether something better might be possible. And I think, you know, until we get back to, or, or until we really get to a point where the university is a space where market relations as a stand-in for all social relations are is questioned, we're, we're just going to continue down this path. In the most optimistic scenario, my hope is that in the pandemic, a lot more people have certainly realized uh, uh, what's at stake, but also have just become completely fed up with the status quo to the point that they just are no longer willing to tolerate working for institutions that are so profoundly exploitative and are so, and and where the ostensible mission of, you know, producing knowledge is so divorced from the everyday reality of what it means to actually work on campus. You're, You're thinking about the failure of the university to essentially market itself as a you know social good perhaps explains to some extent the sub you know the subcategory of the great great resignation that is getting far less attention right the sort of the enrollment crash that we are undergoing right where far fewer young people are choosing to enroll directly out of high school into college it still remains to be seen whether that is COVID related, whether it is, you know, simply a sort of demographic lull, as some have said, or whether that is essentially, you know, the failure of the university to to market itself as anything other than an investment. 
many prospective students see it as a bad investment. And if that's all that they can see it as, right, if we don't find a way to, uh, you know, explain the social goods associated with a college degree, it explains to some extent why fewer students are choosing at least to go directly from high school to college. Annie made reference to the price fixing scandal. I'm very interested to know your thoughts about that. I also know that there was a class action lawsuit that was decided recently that you think has implications for higher education, the, uh, the Navient suit. And so maybe we'll start there. What, why do you think this is an important precedent for higher ed? So the Navient suit is just like, it is a rich text. Um, and I've only begun sort of like digging into it. But in a nutshell, it can give you so much of what's going on in the in the contemporary confluence of late capitalism, corporatism, and, and higher ed and financialization and higher ed. Because part of what the Navient suit is about is the ways in which Navient pushed borrowers into private loans when they were still eligible for public loans. Private loans tend to have much higher interest rates and much more restrictive free payment plans than public loans and are disproportionately used by borrowers of color. So in the exact same way that borrowers of color were often eligible for prime mortgages and pushed into subprime mortgages instead, the same thing has been happening in the education loan sector for many years where disproportionately students who still have public loan eligibility end up with private loans if they're non-white, basically. You also have the piece of the relationship between Navient and the for-profit education sector, the part of the education sector that is explicitly as opposed to implicitly corporate, so institutions like ITT Tech, DeVry, Corinthian, et cetera, those institutions continue to rely on the subsidization of the federal government by way of these public student loans. The Navient scandal is very much wrapped up in that. It's very much wrapped up in the management or the mismanagement of the public student loan forgiveness program, which the Biden administration is currently revamping and trying to make people re-eligible for. I can say as someone who is halfway through the process of trying to become eligible for it, that it remains a bureaucratic nightmare and a total mess. Even if it's better than it was under either Obama or Trump, it is still not fixed by any stretch. It takes an, It's going to take an immense amount of work for everyone to qualify. Um, and so it, it just represents another sort of failure of the infrastructure of the social welfare state to deal with this crisis. And then the last piece of it that I love is that part of the Navient scandal actually has to do with the with the working conditions of call center workers because Navient was employing all of these call center workers, you know, working low to mid wage jobs, and they wanted uh, high levels of efficiency. So I was talking before about how with service work it's very hard to increase efficiency in the way that it is with industrial work, and so often you have a, in service work as in industrial work you have the use of technology to sort of speed up labor. And what was happening with these call center workers is that they were subject to these kinds of basically wage algorithms where they had to meet certain targets of how many students they had to talk to, and they had to meet targets in terms of the length of the call. And so they were not supposed to be on the phone with anybody for more than about seven minutes. And to do paperwork, to have someone, say, qualify for the public student loan forgiveness program or switch from one high cost repayment plan to a lower cost repayment plan, maybe because their income had changed and they needed to be paying less. All of those things take paperwork and they take time. And so the Navient call center workers were basically being forced. And many of them started talking about this to reporters, you know, five, six years ago, what was happening. They were being forced to 
just lead people to the fastest and often not the best option. And so there's this wonderful concatenation of the financialization of student debt and the university on the one hand, and the treatment of workers in apparently like sort of non-educational sectors like call center workers for a student loan industry that become involved in, and in some sense, like sort of, there's this wonderful phrase that people are talking about, have been talking about recently with service work called moral injury. And there's a kind of moral injury done to the call center workers where they're forced to be complicit in a system that they, in many cases, realized was was bad and, and wrong. And the way that that all of that sort of comes together in this one lawsuit, and then at the end of it, you have the forgiveness of $1.8 billion. And Navient itself has said, oh, we're, we're not actually saying that we did anything wrong. We're not taking responsibility for what we did. We still think everything we did was fine, but it's cheaper for us to forgive $1.8 billion in student debt than it is to go through the lawsuit. And that tells you one, the extraordinary amount of student debt that an agency like Navient is controlling, right? And the scale of the market as a whole, but also suggests, well, hey, wait a second, it's like a utopian moment almost, like, hey, wait a second, if it's that easy to just wipe out $1.8 billion in student loans, even for a for-profit entity, not even talking about the, the state, why can't the state do the same thing? And so I think it's like, a, it's one of these moments where all of a sudden some certain kinds of ways of understanding the sort of totality of economic relations around the university and ways of imagining them otherwise, like both become possible all at once. So that's why I'm kind of obsessed with it. It reminds me to some extent a point that I think Esther Taylor made recently, which is if you want to know what the economic system looks like by forgiving student debt, just look at the last 18 months, right? The we haven't been, we've had a, a gap in student loan payments now for close to two years. Amazingly, things have not fallen apart. <laughs> Right. Right. Yeah. Now, obviously, there's other, you know, other things going on. I'm sure that, you know, Larry Summers would tell us that's part of inflation or whatever. But it is very clear that this is not something that will produce a collapse. Your, your point about the Navy is even more exacting in that, right? That if a private corporation can forgive student debt without that kind of dire consequences, then imagine what the, public, the federal government could do. The, the power of these private companies around the management of student debt is, again, I think, yet another example of the ways in which the university has become yet another site where financial capitalism comes to profit. Shot through from the dining hall to uh, the boards of trustees filled with financial executives um, and corporate lawyers, while at the same time, we culturally continue to have this myth of the university as a space apart from market relations, which in turn has I think, devastatingly negative effects for students and especially, I think, for faculty um, in the sense that it is still a place where, as a matter of standard procedure, most academic workers who do have a contract are contracted right for, for nine or 10 months out of the year to do work for the university, even though in practice, uh, we all work 12 months and we just do that anyway. I mean, the idea, right, of even somebody, say, who's on the tenure contract who norm normally is on a nine month or a 10 month contract, not doing work for three months or two months of the year is absurd, right? 
in all of these ways, like the the structure of the university has just become this place where it almost feels at times like all the worst aspects of capitalism have kind of come together in this space, but they're all getting away with it because of this myth that is so ingrained culturally that, you know, the university is a space apart from market relations and just a place um, for thinking um, and not for work. We've established that the existing organizations, like you mentioned the AHA and MLA and ACLA, have, have never been sites of solidarity and oftentimes have have worked to even divide sort of classes of uh, university labor, particularly grad students, contingent professors, and tenure track. But those organizations, all failings in, in consideration, they seem to be kind of dinosaurs anyway, right? That this one of the things that COVID has done is clearly made them very precarious, uh, if they were not already. Where are the spaces of solidarity, right? Where are the the opportunities for collectivism? Where do we turn to find a, a sort of community for, uh, you know, improving the situation that university workers across uh, sectors, right, and across regions, right, find themselves? Increased possibility of faculty unions. I, I admit that I feel a little bit hopeless about that possibility at times. I have found it very difficult to talk to faculty about unionizing. On the other hand, I think that our solidarity and our affiliation with other unions will remain individual and ad hoc to the detriment of both our working conditions and the working conditions of those around us. I think those relations will probably remain fairly ad hoc and, until and unless we unionize ourselves. And not being on a campus that is fortunate enough to have one of those as, as a she is, I can say that like I, you know, I think that that's the work that needs to be done. But I also will say that for myself, partly as a as an effect of my frustration with the difficulty of turning my colleagues into comrades, I have found myself more interested in doing work that brings the university, that widens the university. So the project I'm working on right now is a project called UCI Lifted, which is going to bring the first UC bachelor's degree to incarcerated men, in this case, incarcerated folks in a men's prison in California. And for me, increasingly, that is the place that my energies are going because I feel frustrated by the attempt to organize other faculty and thus, in the absence of that possibility, have been choosing to work with different kinds and broader constituencies of students. I mean, something that I've been thinking about recently, um, particularly in light of the vicious attacks from seemingly literally everywhere across the political spectrum on elementary and secondary school teachers for demanding basic things like basic COVID safety procedures for in-class instruction and just how they've been just attacked from the entire political spectrum about the possibilities of teachers in academia and teachers in secondary schools thinking together about their own identities uh, as educators and what that might mean for building a, a much, perhaps a much broader uh, movement of people who are fighting for labor justice in education. We really, as, as academics, have 
tended to significantly underemphasize and underinvest in our shared interests with secondary and elementary school teachers. In in these last couple of weeks, we've seen so much energy from teachers about um, the needs for workplace justice. And I would add um, students, because we've also seen in these last couple of weeks that students um, who've walked out of unsafe schools across this country in protest of a lack of uh, vaccine mandates and mask mandates and, and, and proper protections are also fed up with the status quo. They are rightly and I think inspiringly demanding a very different uh, vision of what education should be that is really tied to human flourishing and not this kind of capitalist death drive. And we should be in solidarity with them. I think that we need to, as as faculty, really broaden our conception of who is part of our coalition. And I think that if we can do that, we'll see that, I mean, we're the majority. If you think about the interests of, of labor versus capital on campuses, I mean, labor is the majority. Perhaps the most productive thing that could come out of this pandemic is uh, that we realize that and begin to to build a movement about education justice in this country that transcends the specific concerns of the university by linking them to a much broader vision of social and, and economic change. That was Ashish Kapoor Sadiq and Annie McClanahan. I'm Matt Siebel. For more about the works discussed in this episode, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash edwork. I also want to thank Dan Reeder for lending his work song as a theme for this season. Check out his music on Apple, Spotify, or at danreeder.com. Follow him on Twitter. Next episode, I'll be talking about gig work with Heather Berg and Michelle Chihara. Thanks for listening. I got all the fucking work I need I got all the fucking work I need